Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today's episode is the surprising destruction of Sweden's boreal forest. My Ocean River Shields of Achilles radio guest is Eric Hoffner. Hello, Eric. Hi, Rob. Uh, Eric, let me say a little bit about Eric. He is a freelance photojournalist and a fine art photographer. He has blogged for Grist since 2006 and is on the editorial board of Terrain.org, a journal of the built and natural environments. Eric's work appears in Earth Island Journal, World Arc, and The Sun. Eric is also outreach coordinator for Orion Magazine. Eric's travel expenses to Sweden were paid in part by individual contributions to to Spot.us, a community-funded journalism project. Hi, Eric. Where are you calling us from? Thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, I'm in western Massachusetts, wild and woodsy it is here. Uh, Ashfield is the town, and uh, I've got seven acres of uh, mixed hardwoods, and uh, we have moose and bear, and uh, we even had a wolf in the next town over last year before uh, a farmer shot it for eating its uh, sheep. Uh, unfortunate. But. You have coyotes pretty commonly, though? Yeah, we do have coyotes, sure, and fisher cat, fox. You name it. A wolf doesn't belong out there. No, it was uh, just traveling down from Canada, they, they think, and uh, got as far as here. You think that's a problem? No, I don't think so. I think Your it's totally not all in arms about the wolf in the neighborhood or something? <laughs> no, it was just sort of a interesting novelty. People shrug totally their is. shoulders, you know. Mostly people are talking about uh, cougars in the neighborhood, and they haven't been verified yet, but everyone pretty much thinks they're here. They, cougars are so secretive that uh, they can exist in places for a long time before anyone knows it. Sure. There's always hope. Well, you're talking with us today because uh, you published an article in Yale Environment 360 on the 1st of December of 2011, and the article is titled, Sweden's Green Veneer Hides Unsustainable Logging Practices. Uh, Sweden has a reputation as being one of the world's most environmentally progressive nations, but its surprisingly lax forestry laws often leave decisions about logging to the timber companies. Uh, And as a result, large swaths of biologically rich boreal forests are being lost. So you went and investigated these claims by Sweden and its forestry companies um, that their logging practices are the most sustainable in the world, and yet you know, this story seemed to come as a surprise to you. And how did you, um, how did your trip to Sweden all come about? How did this whole thing get started? Right. I've been covering 
old-growth forest issues in Europe as a freelancer for a few years, uh, Russia and uh, Poland, some other areas. So uh, Latvia, I was tipped off about a pretty vigorous discussion happening in Sweden about whether, in fact, Sweden's uh, forestry regime was all that it was promised to be. Because if you pay attention, you'll see that the Swedish government and its industry will will tout its um, its forestry model as being the most sustainable in the world, and they will um, encourage other countries to you know adopt what what they do. Um, and and the model is um, it's it's based on a, on the principle of um, Voluntary. It's a it's a voluntary system, you know. And uh, it's called, the 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 working phrase is freedom with responsibility. You companies, uh, landowners, you are free to cut your land and manage your land, but you're responsible for what you do. And um, what the government asked these you know, all the different actors to do is to balance production of wood products with conservation. So if you cut half of this um, area, then you need to conserve half of the area. Or if you own a million hectares, then you need to um, set aside some of that. And there's, there are percentages that are officially expected by the forestry agency. And uh, so, you know, Sweden is a very responsible country. I mean, they're, they're arguably the greenest in the world. They lead in most categories, including uh, development aid to developing countries um, in terms of their own practices within their borders. Um, green power, you know, they, you can, I was amazed I could, I could compost in my hotel room as well as recycle three different types of recyclables in a different bins. I mean, it's just the kind of green consciousness is baked into people. Um, and people expect that of each other. They, they expect that you're going to, you know, be a good citizen and, and do what you're asked to do because it's the right thing. So that's why in 1993 um, they reworked their forestry system with this new model saying, you know, this can extend to our forestry agency or our forest industry as well. We can ask them to do this and they will do it. And um, it hasn't really been turning out that way. Um, well, let me interrupt for a second. That's, you know, we know Sweden as being a source of, of wood products for hundreds of years. And so we look to that, Forestry, the Forest Stewardship Council, you know, logo on the products and stuff. And um, are you saying there's some question with that? Yeah, well, Sweden has the lo- one of the longest logging histories in the world. They have the oldest logging company called Stura Enso, which was formed in 1200. Uh, this is, yeah, this is an old company, and it's still <laughs> operating, major employer, uh, has major land holdings here in the U.S. as well, in Canada. And um, so, and it's also the place where clear cutting was um, really popularized. However, until about 1950, 
um, they really were selective loggers. Largely, they would go in and take what, this tree here and that tree over there and leave everything intact um, otherwise. But as of mm. about 1950, it's moved to a model of complete uh, clear-cut um, across the landscape. Now, one thing that um, you're, you were mentioning, uh, yes, the Forest Stewardship Council is an international certification which uh, you and me as... Uh, Citizens can go into a store and find that label on paper products or on boards and uh, feel like we're getting the, the, the greenest product available. Um, yeah, the Ocean River Institute pays extra to have that on our stationery. You know, yeah. we want to be sure to use. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's uh, like any of these big schemes, organic, for example, or... or um, you know, aquaculture. These are these are huge industries with very difficult uh, supply chains, and, and there's a lot to monitor and know what's going on there. So, you know, it certainly isn't a surprise that that there are some issues with a, a scheme as big as FSC. Um, but uh, you know, in, in Sweden, it, it, this is a really big big industry logging is the most important natural resource industry it has besides iron ore. After that, it's uh, hydropower and wind power. These are, these are their kind of major natural resources uh, bases. They don't have any oil or coal or anything like that. Um, and 45% uh, of all Sweden's forests, 45% of 23 million hectares, is FSC certified forest. So sustainably managed 45% of, you know, the most forested country in Europe um, and also the third largest country in Europe. So, you know, when you put those factoids together, you realize we're talking about large expanses of trees. So it's pretty neat that 45% of that amazing amount of uh of boreal forest or taiga, as it's called, is uh, is you know certified as sustainable, but um, it, there are problems uh, with that. And but with you know the uh, the the Swedish forestry model in general, you know, 55% of Sweden's forests aren't FSC certified, but they're still operating under this Swedish forestry model um, of freedom with responsibility, and. Uh, fact is that the forestry agency is not up to the task of uh, monitoring what's going out there going on out there in the trees and um, it's been largely up to the NGO sector to bird dog them and and find out uh, what what the real truth is out in the trees because the how it works is um, if I own a piece of land I will notify the forestry agency I want to cut my seven acres of land, um, and I'm going to do it, you know, this spring. And uh, the forestry agency has six weeks to respond and say, I'm sorry, you already cut that land 30 years ago or whatever, or I'm sorry, you have this, you know, area of really old trees that should not be cut. It's part of our national natural heritage. Um, they, can, they can halt a cut for any of those reasons, but they only have six weeks to do it. 
and um, 70,000 notifications are filed every year. Uh, yeah, so it's a lot to keep up on top of, and they, they really they can't be on top of all of it. So that's part of the problem. And the other part of the problem is even if they tell a landowner that they can't cut, you know, that highest hectare or whatever because it's got the, the most important trees for the white-backed woodpecker or something on it, um, people still will end up cutting it. And they don't have any um, way to um, really enforce the rules. There's, it, it's just unheard of that anyone will be sued or fined or anything like that for um, poor practices. Um, it's, it's like the FSC. It's more of a monitoring agency uh, or a... Yeah, um, a, uh, an agency that that will pay attention and advise and improve, but it is not a monitoring agency. It's not an enforcement agency. So um, they're really relying heavily on people to do the right thing. And the NGO sector has been um, very uh, loudly saying the last few years that um, this this has to change because... Uh, we're losing we're losing biologically rich forests too fast, and too many mistakes are being made. Um, there's there's a you know a kind of a biodiversity crisis, if you will, in Europe, where there's very little natural land still available. You know there are many countries that have been entirely logged and don't have anything like natural forests left. So um, Sweden is has something of a, a core area. Uh, and Latvia is in, is in a similar uh, position. They have a core of very large areas of natural trees where endangered and rare species live. And uh, but the, the 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 fact is is that there are 1,200, or I should say 2,100 uh, red list um, threatened or endangered species um, in Sweden right now, and almost all of those are are animals on the decline because they rely on forests to um, survive for their habitat. And, and the, the forests are being lost at a, at a rapid pace. So, you know, and it's, and it's largely because uh, these companies that log there are very large, um, employing 30, 40, 50,000 people. They have their own sawmills, and they have quotas that they want to fill so that they can keep their sawmills running all the time, and their pulp plants running all the time. So, um, they have, you know, the, the material has to come from somewhere or you have to, you know, cut jobs. So they are in, increasingly moving into areas of the country uh, which have not been cut before, um, which, you know, are natural forests, have all of the characteristics of old growth, even though we're pretty sure all of Sweden, you know, there's only like 5% of, of Sweden's forests that actually could qualify as old growth because everything else has been selectively cut to some degree or another. Um, but even if you selectively cut a forest over hundreds and hundreds of years, it will still look just like old growth and act like it and have the full complement of biodiversity. Um, but 
um, Sweden's forests are rapidly younging, they say. Um, half of the, the trees in the country are too young to be cut. They're between 20 and 50 years old, and there's just there's no economic reason to go and cut trees that small. And um, so what they have to do, these big companies, they have to move into further northern areas, up scraping up on the Arctic Circle and, and cutting these, these old, old forests, which um, have rare orchids and rare lichens and fungi. Um, the white-backed woodpecker is, um, is another species of concern. There's only 10 of them left in the country. Holy smokes, 10 of the white-backed woodpeckers. Yeah, just 10 yeah. left, although I think they might be on the increase, which would be great. Uh, These so woodpeckers are cooler than our downy and hairy woodpeckers because instead of having three toes forward and one toe back, they have two toes forward and two toes back, uh -huh. so they're better adapted for clinging onto trees while they hammer it with their heads and stuff. Really cool. <laughs> it would be a shame to lose that stuff. Now... When you're saying, I mean, here in New England, you know, 300 years is an old forest, but you're talking about 600-year-old trees. How do you get to 600-year-old trees out there? Well, yeah, you grow slowly. And this is a, you know, boreal forest. Um, the very northern kinds of forests of, of pine and, and spruce, um, the growing season is very short. You know, it's long winters, deep snow. Uh, so trees can persist for a very long time. And That's uh, a really good point, because I was shocked to think that, you know, with trees growing 60, 60 years, they wouldn't be big enough to sustain a, a harvesting industry. Yeah. You know, that works great down in Georgia and the southeast U.S. You can turn around timber real fast. I mean, it's just a few decades. But because of the climate, you're saying, up there, the Swedes just can't have young forests that are harvestable. Exactly. And that's why, you know, the regeneration rate is so slow that you really, really should not be overcutting. Yeah, even those younger forests. Yeah. So the older forests, uh, you were explaining that uh, the trees might live 300 years and then they can stand dead for 300 years or they, they you know, the dead wood is really valuable for species diversity. Yeah. Yeah, there are particular fungi that will only live on a, on a dead pine that's been standing for 300 years. And then once that tree finally falls over, another kind of fungi, which only fall, lands on that kind of old, old log laying on the ground, will start to grow. And there are special animals who key in on, on parasitizing these particular fungi and so you start to see, you know, just that one dead tree has this whole web of life that's all um, part of one piece. And uh, when you come through with harvesters and you knock everything down and haul almost everything away, uh, there's really, there's, it's a really long time before you get anything back. And the, one of the things that's changed that is, is also a concerning trend is that, um, Forestry now happens 365 days a year. It used to be um, they would only uh, cut and haul the logs out when the ground was frozen, but with the uh, being publicly traded and exporting to Germany and to Japan and to the United States, 
you know, they just want to be cutting every day. So they're they're driving huge um, harvesters and and machinery log trucks through these clear cuts, uh, even in mud season, and and you will see just enormous tire tracks full of water, you know, knee-deep water in areas that were natural forests very recently. And you can quickly see that this is going to take a very long time for those tire tracks to fill in or, I don't know, maybe they'll become ponds on their own or something, but it won't really look like it used to. No, you cannot underestimate that destructive damage to that Taiga forest of uh, these heavy logs, you know, scarifying the soil like that. It's just it, everything takes so long to repair that it's it's really shocking that they're permitted to, uh, you know, and they really have to grind up the soil because it's so soggy and, and deep. That's why the logging for, you know, for a thousand years, because so they go back to 1200, I guess, you know, was always done in the cold weather. Was you could slide stuff around. Talk about destructive. I mean, it's bad enough that you're cutting trees, and so you might get more sediment running off, but then you, you dig it up like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to take a, a quick break, and we'll be back with Eric Hoffner after this break. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Eric Hoffner about the uh, forestry practices in northern Sweden. And uh, we were talking about how there are such old forests up there that the trees, the pines, and the spruces, uh, there are also hardwoods up there, and they will grow for 300 years. And then the tree uh, must 
stand dead for about that same length of time again in order for certain lichens and, uh, and mosses and microbial um, plant or critters, I guess, grow on, you know, and, and it's a whole ecology based on these long-lived uh, animals. Uh, Eric, uh, you, you have a great photograph that people can see if they go to uh, oceanriver.org slash Eric, bottom, um, it's at a bottom line, and then Hoffner, um, and hopefully I spelled your name correctly here. <laughs> um, it shows a, a man examining a fallen tree stump, and it's covered in gray lichens. Can you tell us about that photograph? Sure. Yeah, I had a, a real great time traveling with a couple volunteer science teams, which are out looking at the forests that are on the chopping block or could be on the chopping block. They go out and they've trained themselves to uh, identify rare species of lichen, uh, lichen and, and fungi, uh, largely, because you can. You, these are species that um, can be very rare and can um, be seen at any time of the year. You know, unlike the white-backed woodpecker, it migrates and thing, you know, such like that, or an orchid might bloom and then disappear. Um, you can go through a forest any time of year, and if you can find these particular sorts of creatures, then you can extrapolate from that and, and, and make a lot of bigger assumptions about how important a piece of land is. So what this, these teams will do is go out uh, for week-long um, trips throughout uh, different parts of Sweden, and right now they're working really hard to map all of the uh, biologically important forests in the country um, and they do this to, uh, as a service to the forestry agency, which is always happy to know where, the, uh, where important things are found. They'll send their own biologists out to verify what uh, the activists have found. And they'll also use that same information they gather uh, when they talk to the sustainability director of uh, whichever con uh, company owns a tract to say, um, I think we found a woodland key habitat on your land, and we found this species, and and so we really feel like you should have this in your, your plan if you're going to cut this. And they're also um, appreciative of that, and, and they'll send their own biologists as well to do the same sort of assessment. And they, they will often keep important tracts from being cut by being out there. And it's a really fun scene. You know, it'll be um, several people at a time at, for almost a month on, on week-long stints. Um, when I was there, there was a mycologist with a Ph.D. from Helsinki. Um, the team leader was from Helsinki. Um, and then there was a biology student, like 20 years old, from uh, a, a university in northern Sweden. And we would just go out into different areas each day, and each person had a, a video, a, a a little digital camera, a GPS unit, and a radio. And they'd all be talking to each other. I'm in, you know, X, XYZ quadrat, and I found this. And, and if they, you know, they find something really exciting, they'll take a picture, they'll get a sample, and they'll mark it on a, on a GPS unit. And uh, what they end up doing is creating a whole new map of an area of a forest that uh, shows what's special and different about it. And, you know, that becomes part of a record that is is really big service, and 
you know, besides that, you just you're going through these areas and and you're looking at it in a whole new way. You know, you're not just looking at the at the horizon or how tall that tree is over there, but you're looking for all the deadwood. You're looking mm. for, you know, the the, the the mossiest trees. You know, and and these guys, they will turn over every log, every single one. They will they will inspect every tree, every nook and cranny, and uh, it's grueling work. It's just it's sunrise to sunset, literally. They will they will get up in the morning, make coffee, make breakfast and lunch, and bring all that with you, and you just go from tract to tract, um, bombing down these, these forest roads uh, to get from one to the other. You know, as soon as this one's done, okay, on to the next one, you know. And, you know, when it gets too dark, that's when you go back and you make dinner and then fall wow. in your tent and wake up in the morning and do it again. So it's a really intense group of people. They're really dedicated and, and very funny, too. And I had a blast following them around. I just I got to make some of my favorite images, and and, and projects like this, my favorite part is the images. Um, it's really what I'm, I'm all about as a photographer. And so, um, yeah, uh, you guys should uh, you should check out any of the pictures on my website, erichoffner.com. Um, got a whole section of them there. And yeah, uh, yeah, the 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 the, the close up. Examination. Most of these pictures, you can just see how they're peering at these things, and everyone's got a little magnifying glass, and they're getting up all tight and close. And the colors are great. You know, there's there's uh, lichen hanging all over everything, and there's just the mats of of lichen on the on the uh, on the forest floor. They're amazing. You know, and this is what reindeer like to eat. They you know they use old forests like this in the winter for winter forage. It's super important. Um, so and so, the indigenous reindeer herders really also, by extension, will uh, rely on on those same areas. So um, it's it's a really interesting thing to watch and to, and to be a part of for a while. The other great thing was that uh, besides the mats of of lichen, were huge uh, expanses of of uh, blueberries growing everywhere. I've nice. never seen so many blueberries in my life. <laughs> So we were just snacking all day long, and everyone's fingers are stained purple. We're just <laughs> shoveling them in. Amazing. Well, the photograph is, is really striking because you see this horizontal tree log, which I would not want to roll over because it's a pretty heavy-looking, hefty-looking piece of tree there. Mm-hmm. But um, it looks like a fuller brush. It's so lush with the lichens coming out of it. And then the horror sinks in that the next tree is tens and tens of meters and yards away, and the, those next trees are only about 27 trees, and then there's an opening beyond that. So this is already a seriously disturbed area that has, and isn't that a problem for the survival of the old forest trees? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Every time trees are removed, the whole, um, all the uh, environmental requirements change, you know. Things dry out. Certain uh, shrubs or or uh, or other plants will be favored. So yeah, it, it it's amazing to see the difference just in you know a mile a mile's distance from one to the next tract. You know, if there was a clear cut next to you know this old forest and this other old forest has intact forest next to it, the difference is amazing. Just really incredible. Mm. You know, it looks so wonderful, and then it, it sinks into you that, 
oh my gosh, this is all possibly tentative because, as you said, the the sunlight increased sunlight coming in and drying of the the whole area, um, and then and then um, new fast growing species, you know, early colonial uh, colonizing uh, woody plants come in there and uh, push out or shade out. Well, I guess shade is good, but yeah. uh, it's it's really a, a, an ecosystem in transition that you're witnessing. Um, I, I like the video that you also have up there, and the first thing you notice when you interview or when the um, forester or the naturalist is being interviewed is that he's got one of those loops hanging from his neck, you know, that he would do his eye to look at, I guess, lichens and, and mosses and small things. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the, the main campaigners. Um, she uh, covers a lot of ground, and uh, in that video, also you'll notice their, her sled dogs are out there running around in the, uh, in the boreal and uh, catching lemmings and, and rolling around in the brush and just having a ball. But, uh, yeah, she keeps a whole, a whole uh, dog team and uh, covers a lot of ground in the winter with do- her dogs. The dog really still steals the show. You're trying to listen to this. You're listening to this fabulous person describing, you know, her outrage of what's happening to her in the forest there. And the dog just saunters over and proceeds to roll in the, in the branches that are 300-year-old deadwood or something. Yeah. You know, the happiest dog in Sweden or uh, yeah. something like that. It, it's, uh, it's an interesting, uh, it, it's a great video. I highly recommend it. It's just a few minutes, but it really gives you a sense of the, uh, lushness of the ancient forest, and then the absolute kind of turnaround and loss that's happening as these things get cut down and opened up. And apparently, they're not um, even when they clear cut, they're not abiding by setbacks or buffers from wetlands, and um, they're, they're not. They don't seem to be cutting the way they should. That's been your experience. Yeah, the uh, the the border between a clear cut and a bog or a stream, for example, can be. So you can be across it in two strides. And uh, so there's a lot of uh, worry about uh, water quality, of, of course, and, uh, yeah. and also you know, what that means to the soils that are eroding around it. Right. Your work has a lot to do with that, paying attention to that. Yes, the soils then can wash into the the streams and the, and the water and cause siltation and destroy the yeah. any, any angling fishing that you have in the, on those lower rivers coming out of the Taiga there. Yeah. Yeah, and all this is, is not to say that Sweden is, is, are a bunch of bad guys. They're, not they're, at all. They're no, really they're trying, not. you know, and even the, the industry representatives I spoke to, you know, said, I know, you know, we're, it, it's, a, it's a big problem. We're trying to figure it out. And, um, and, you know, and the forestry agency person I interviewed, she agreed, you know, you know, our, our logging is not sustainable, but we're really working on it and we're going to try. And, and, you know, and they're um, having a real debate at this point about how to make the, their system work better. You know, because generally speaking, their logging is, is, in, is, is, you know, is about as good as anyone's, you know, I mean, we can't point fingers here in the U.S. or in Canada where, you know, we don't, you know, the laws are different, but we do see massive cutting in areas and uh, um, and better 
you know, examples elsewhere. I mean, one of my neighbors here in Ashfield is, is FSC certified himself, and he's one of the best sorts. I mean, he's got a few hundred acres, and he selectively cuts um, really important um, uh, great little trees here and there, and then he'll mill them up and, you know, cut them for boards for clients. But, you know, you will never know that he's been out there cutting because his forest doesn't change. Um, so we have examples of good and bad here, too, and every country does. But it's just um, everyone expects that Sweden will do, you know, the best and, and, and truly be that model that we expect. And, and I trust that they will be. They just they have, uh, they have some, some work to do to get there. Yeah, uh, there's every indication that the Swedes are better than average foresters. And what we're seeing is a big, on a big scale is the tragedy of the commons where it's just so tempting to take one more tree or to cut one more area or cut one more area, you know, extend the cutting season to a warmer, into a warmer month and stuff. And um, they just can't resist from doing that. And, you know, in America what we have is a pretty strong EPA that has to step in on behalf of the American citizens and say, whoa, you know, um, and in fairness to the other people in the same business, you know, you, if this group, if this individual gets to have an extra cut at it or an extra go at it, it's not fair for those that don't, so they all have to do it. Uh, how can Sweden get out of this um, spiral? Well, for one, they could tighten down on, on FSC in general. One of the, the surprising things is that um, FSC says, you know, if you do X, Y, and Z, then you can use our label and get top dollar for your product. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Eric Hoffner. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. 
Experience higher love, an archangelic journey into ascended joy and authentic living. Your hosts, Sri Ram Ka and Kira Ra, will assist you to open your heart, expand your love, and be ever-present with true joy. Your journey with Sri and Kira begins right here on the 7th Wave Network with Higher Love, Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about the surprising destruction of Sweden's boreal forest. And my guest is Eric Hoffner, and Eric is calling us from uh, the Berkshires of Massachusetts, just up the hill from Northampton. And he got disconnected. Oh, uh, Are you back? Yeah, sorry about that, Rob. Hey, he's back. So we were talking about um, the Forest Stewardship Council and how that, you know, when we buy paper products like the Ocean River Institute um, has on its stationery the, the symbol for FSC in those letters, meaning that the, the Pope wood, uh, the Pope paper, the paper was made from sustainably harvested wood, hopefully, and it's also recycled uh, in our case. But that imprint is really important for uh, savvy, smart buyers to encourage best practices of forests. And uh, they, uh, Eric is telling us how that there's a bit of a uh, conflict in being effectively applying that um, cert- certification and the practices going on in Sweden, right? Yeah, yeah. And many cases have been documented where a company has uh, notified the forestry agency that it's going to cut a piece of land, and the agency will say, okay, but you can't cut that 10 hectares over there because... You know, that's special. You need to set that aside. They'll come back later, or an NGO will come back later and see that it was cut anyway. Um, and there's never any um, ramifications for that. You know, I'm not saying that this happens every time, but it's well documented, and there are companies that do this over and over again. Um, the what What should happen is that FSC Sweden should step in and say, okay, you know, you have done this too many times and you can't use our label to sell your products. Um, they don't do that. They, they will tell you that they're, they're not a monitoring agency. They are a, an improving agency. You know, they're trying to get all these amazingly complex and enormous companies all up to speed on, on doing the right thing, and you can't do it right off the bat. Um, that said, I mean, they've been trying... They've been operating since 1997 in in Sweden, so you would hope that they would um, um, have dialed that in by now. But you know, FSC is is a is a certification, just like organic or other uh, bodies like that, where um, their claims are uh, in turn certified by another certifier. 
um, these big international um, consultancies which will come in and and they will um, they will say you know um, there's been a complaint about the FSC label in X country and we're looking we're going to look into the case you know so if you if you don't feel like the FSC certifying group in your country is doing a job you can complain to them and and so um, an NGO in Sweden, the Swedish Society for Nature Conservation, has um, complained all the way up the chain to the international um, consultancy, um, which has looked at their claims in, in, in various uh, cases. And in a most recent case, and I'm telling you this because this was this is a really interesting thing to hear um, from a certifying agency. They were told um, yes. It appears that you are right. They should not have done this um, cutting in this area, but as because perfection can never be expected, uh, mistakes have to be accepted, and that was the end of it. Um, you know, there yeah. was I, you know, being someone who <laughs> you know believes in you know fairness and law and things like that, I would expect at that point they would get a you know a pretty strong reprimand and maybe get their their label taken away from them, but they were just told uh, basically that this is this is how it goes. Well, we Americans forget that to take the label away from a company that's been logging since 1200 A.D. Um, could be a little more difficult than, say, Montgomery Roses or something. <laughs> right. Yeah, and these, and these companies have enormous power. There was a there was a company in Latvia. Which recently did lose its certification under FSC because what it was doing was so egregious. Um, but not even a week passed by, and they were allowed to use it again without any explanation. Yeah. So, so what? You know, I, you can trust the label, I think, to a degree, but we can't be complacent about it. I think we, you know, just like anything, we get a good law passed. Um, we have to make sure that our elected officials keep enforcing it and the courts keep upholding it and all that. And I think the same thing applies with FSC. They, they deserve as much scrutiny as anyone else because the system can work. It's just that so far um, it's not working as well as it can. And, and in a place like Sweden, we, we would hope that it would work as best as it could. Yes, and um, that's what the NGOs are working toward. And, you know, the EPA... The way it goes about a big business like that is it says, we want you to get to this practice. Now, how can you move in that direction? And you work with the company for how they can get. So the EPA demanded that the locomotive engines have cleaner air. And so um, General Electric had to work with them and say, okay. and General Electric decided not to just throw in catalytic converters, but instead to redesign the whole locomotive. So that meant that they would be out of compliance for a longer period of time, but that was okay with the EPA as long as they were moving toward the better product. And in the end, they are now selling thousands of locomotives to China because not only are they cleaner, but they're better built, better designed, and more reliable for the investments. Wow. And it only came about because the EPA insisted that they clean up their air and then worked with the company to develop a system that was win-win for the company and for the um, getting the regulation in. It took longer, but um, since you don't have the option of shutting, you know, you don't shut GE down because they weren't in compliance on stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so um, this is the kind of approach that, you know, the NGOs could, could work with um, 
FSC and or FSC just pretty much needs to monitor that uh, kind of uh, you know plan of you know well, okay will you mean well then what are the steps for for meaning well to uh, you know and it may not be that the first you know they may be the first they respect setbacks and then they do something next and so forth and because um, you need to hold them to responsible actions down the road I think yeah and like you said it can be very good business as well yeah and the outsiders don't know how to do the business. So the EPA didn't know how to tell um, GE how to build locomotives. They didn't need outsiders telling GE how to build locomotives. They just needed to say, look, this is our goal, is we want to have you emitting cleaner air. And, you know, so the goal for Sweden is we, we want to have, we want to lose less old-growth forests, and we want less destruction of waterways. Um, and uh, how, do we, how, how can you show, how can we say that the companies are moving to get to those points? And as long as they're moving toward them, then you can maintain certification, right. which is pretty wed to it anyways. And, of course, if they get delays, then they have to say, oh, we got a delay, and then, you know, it, it continues. But it's just a constant pressure, I would think, that needs to be. And transparency. So mm-hmm. it is just incredible that uh, you went in and found this story and brought it to light um, because it's probably very real in the face of the Swedes, but uh, the rest of the world just assumes they're getting what they think they're getting from Swedish timber and, and wood products. Yep, yep. Can't be complacent about anything in this world, really. But uh, Sweden is an amazing place. It's, it's a great place to travel, and uh, people are very, very friendly. Everyone speaks English. The food is great. I, I absolutely recommend it. Um, I had a, a wonderful time. My family is from there, so I thought this would be an interesting way for me to travel there for the first time. And, uh, indeed, it was interesting. And what do you have for a family? Uh, my father's side, they, they came from a fishing village. No, I mean, did you bring children with you or? Uh, oh, no, no. Gosh. No. I yeah. can't imagine doing an assignment <laughs> with, uh, with family in tow. Oh, goodness. Well, that would be another program for another time. Yeah. Um, Eric, we're running out of time. Are there other projects you'd like to share with us before we wrap it up? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, you know, I've also traveled for the Heifer Project. I, I've covered their work a few times, and uh, on my website you can see a whole uh, series of images that I, I created about uh, the project in Poland where, um, you know, you probably know the Heifer Project. These are, um, this is an NGO that helps people survive by providing animals that they can milk or, or collect eggs from or that sort of thing and usually in developing countries, but in a country like Poland, what they are doing is helping small farmers compete with the big Smithfields and, you know, enormous farms by helping them reestablish heritage breeds of animals. These animals that uh, have lived for millennia uh, were developed in Poland, special breeds of cows, horses, uh, pigs, chickens, and uh, so I was. I went there to profile this. They're uh, they're saving these animals from extinction, but the animals are also uh, their their products are more valuable, and uh, they're getting more money for the farmers. So it's a really it's a wonderful win win uh, project of the Heifer Project in Poland. And uh, yeah, there's a whole gallery of pictures from that, uh, all in black and white, on my website because I thought it would be fun to show this old fashioned relationship that's being rekindled in an old format. So 
Uh, I mean, yeah, the Hefner course, project is really important. They do fabulous work. I highly recommend it. Uh, we have an earlier program about Dutch, uh, Belgian belted cows in, in New England uh-huh. as being the most efficient grazers. And so it's a great going to an old stock that um, is, is more efficient at converting grasses into milk than uh, the big Holsteins that everyone else uses and stuff. And it's fabulous to hear about local, um, you know, and the local indigenous cattle and cows of, of Poland. Yeah. Uh, Eric, we are just about out of time. Thank you so much for telling us about the stories of Sweden's forests and the cows of Poland. Fantastic. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you, Rob. And I urge people to visit Eric's website. They can get contacts from oceanriver.org. You can, go, you can um, Google him, Eric, that's E-R-I-K-H-O-F-F-N-E-R. And uh, for everybody, thank you for listening to Ocean River Shields of Achilles. Until next time, thanks a lot. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science.